as you're flipping there, I want to tell you, you know, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I want to kind of let you know a little bit about who I am and what, you know, a little bit about what makes Matt tick. You know, I am um, just a little bit of a nerd in that I love the Lord of the Rings. I don't know if I, any fans in the room, okay, all the first service must have all been saved because they, they were all for a hoot and horror and all that. So, uh, but yeah, man, I love Lord of the Rings. I've, you know, early on in my life, my aunt kind of introduced me to this whole world of the Shire and all that. And so I started like reading the books and then we watched all the premieres, all the movies. Uh, we've got them all DVR'd. And, you know, I, I could tell you literally what happens almost in every scene, quote different scenes to you, all this kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, what, one of the things that, that's become aware to me as I'm watching these, uh, you know, these movies is that, you know, no matter how, like, bleak the scene looks, like, they could be outnumbered, outsized, outmatched, back against the wall, you know, just a couple of little hobbits and, you know, against an army of orcs. And, uh, and it, something about knowing the end changes the way that I, I, you know, I watch that scene, you know. It doesn't matter how bad things get or how difficult it might look or, like, man, there's no way out of this. They're, they're toast, right? I know in the end Frodo takes the ring to Mordor. Right, I know that in the end, if you don't know Lord of the Rings, sorry, spoiler, okay, uh, in the end, Frodo wins. And so it just changes the way that you watch the movie. You're like, oh, I know how he's going to get out of this, you know. I know the end, and it changes the way that I, I interact in the moment. You tracking with me? So when, I, when we come to Revelation, I believe this is not just a perk of this book, but I think it's actually the point of it. Right? It's not just a perk that we read through the book of Revelation and we see, okay, in the end, Jesus wins. But what else has all this got to do with it? I think it's the point of the whole book. The point of the whole book of Revelation is that it, we would understand the end, and by understanding that in the end, Jesus wins, right? In the end, Jesus is on his throne. In the end, he conquers. In the end, sin will be wiped clean. Every tear will be wiped from the eyes of his saints. In the end, it changes how we live today, right? Change how we live today. And this is super, I think, just current and relevant to our lives today because the reality is, guys, it doesn't matter what you came in here, like kind of carrying, no matter what. Uh, you know, weight or just, um, you know, worries that you are, are present with you. Maybe there's a, a heavy demand on your shoulders from work or, or whatever's going on. No matter what weighs you down, you can understand today there's hope in this book because Jesus wins, right? Jesus wins in the end. And this is exactly why the book of Revelation was written. It wasn't written so that we could come to it and try to, like, decipher it like the Da Vinci Code. That's not what this is. It's not a puzzle book. Right? We don't come to, you know, Revelation, we're like, okay, when does this happen over here? This must mean, you know, you got all these angels, this many angels, that must mean that when I look at CNN, this is happening. Now. That's not what it's about, right? It's not a puzzle book. Revelation was written to real people in a real time going through really hard things. And so as God, through John, gives this letter to them, what he's doing is saying, hey, guys, look, get your eyes up off of what you're walking through. Get your eyes off the intensity of the persecution you're being met with. Get your eyes up off of this and put them on heaven and see that in the end, Jesus wins, right? In the end, Jesus wins. And so specifically, this was the hope that they could gain. This is what God was doing as he was writing to these real churches uh, in the first century. But as God's people today, the truth has not expired. It's good for us today that no matter what we carry in our lives, no matter what we're walking through, man, listen, there is hope. And it's that, listen. In the end, Jesus wins. When you know the end, it changes how you live today. Changes how you live today. And as we saw last week, we looked at chapter 6, and 
we saw the sixth seal opened up, and with it, man, just like things got dark, right? And it was crazy timing on our launch week. It's like, hey, welcome to Life Point Judgment, right? Like that's you know the whole world's being rolled up and all this stuff, and it says that all the the wicked, the ones that don't look to Jesus, don't believe in Him, don't follow Christ. It says that in the end, they will le- literally say, it is better for me to die than to stand before this judgment seat. It's better for me to die, and so I'm going to call it to the rocks, fall on me, mountains smash me. It's better for me to hide myself than to turn to him uh, and, and to deal with the judgment that's coming from non-believers. And, uh, and it's so bad, so comprehensive, so total that we said that uh, they begin to ask this really good question. Who can stand? I mean, like, it is so sweeping, and, and no one can hide from this, this sovereign, powerful, magnificent God. And it says that the, all the unbelievers on that day will stand and say, who, who can stand? Who can stand before him? Well, it's such a good question that God gives another vision to John to answer it. And here's what we see. Those who can stand on that day are those who are sealed and those who endure. All right, those who are sealed and those who endure. And so let's look at this text again together today. But before we do, let me ask the Lord just to bless our time, okay? Father, I love you. And Lord, I do ask that you would just speak through me. My words are imperfect. My thoughts are jumbled. And Lord, yours are not. So I need you. Uh, and so God, would you just do what only you can. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Revelation 7, verses 1 through 8 says this. And I know Chad read it a lot. He has a way better reading voice than I did as well. So uh, I won't read every word in this, but most. So it says this. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay, so chapter 7 begins and it says, after this. Now a lot of people, again, that come to Revelation, it's like, I'm just going to read this as literal as I can. I'm going to try to match these things up in chronological order, look for the signs of the times and, and what's going on in my world. I'm going to flip through my favorite news station and try to see how all this lines up. That's problematic. Okay, here's why. Revelation is not in chronological order. Right? It's not best to come to Revelation and say, what happens next? That's, that's not how we need to approach it. It's apocalyptic literature. These are visions. Again, it's not a puzzle book. It's best understood as a picture book. God is giving John all of these visions. Right, And so it's not what happens next. It's what did he see next. Okay, What did he see next? It says, after this, I saw. And then it will say, after that, I turned and I looked and I saw. And then I looked and saw. And so God is giving him these visions, and they're not in chronological order. And you'll see that today, but you'll also get this when you get to chapter 14. That happened before, like 2,000 years before this book was ever written in chronological order. So they're not in linear time scale, okay? That's not the way we best approach this. We come to this and say, okay, what did he see next? And it says, after the earth was rolled up, it says, I, after that I turned and I saw... Right After this, I saw, what do you see? Four angels. It says, standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, in the book of Revelation, four is this word that just, it, it means like all of creation. 
right? So when it says he's standing at the four corners of the earth, he's not talking about that the earth is flat. We all know that it is, right? It's not what he's talking about. That's a joke. You can laugh later. Um, and uh, no big deal. And he says he's holding back the four winds of the earth so that the winds would not blow on the earth against the sea or against any tree. And he says that basically don't harm the earth, don't harm the sea, don't harm anyone on it until when? It says until we have sealed the servants of our God. Now, any time in Scripture the word servants of our God is used, it's talking about all of the redeemed, all who believe in Jesus Christ, okay? So what he's saying here is he's saying these four angels he sees are those four horsemen we've seen in the first four seals that Christ, as he opened up the scroll and he began to open the seals, as he opened the first four, these judgments began to pour out on earth, right? Through these four horsemen of the apocalypse, okay? Now, again, uh, I don't believe that that's coming. I think that we have seen this in our life, right? Like things are not getting better. Newsflash, right? Things are getting, you know, progressively or just deteriorating as as perfection is unraveling until God comes and makes all things new. So he he says to these angels, "Hey, hold back, hold tight, don't harm the earth." Now, why do I think the chapter seven happens out of out of order. It's not chronological because the earth has already been harmed in chapter 6, right? He opened up the seals and the, I mean, things just start going down, right? Like, like the, he says last week, like he rolled up the sky, you know, and the, the moon was, was red like blood and, and meteors start crashing on the earth and people were like saying, mountain fall on me. Like, it's already going down in chapter 6. So chapter 7 kind of gives us some more color. It's like an overlapping vision to what happened before chapter 6 so that we understand God said before the judgment comes, look here, I'm going to seal the saints. I'm going to seal all the servants of God so that they could be kept through hardship until the last days. Right? This is what we see happening in this passage. Chapter 7 is best understood as like a parenthetical statement or like a kind of a parenthesis, a, a flashback, right? In chapter 6, when they say, who can stand? Let me show you. Right? And all those who are sealed. That's who will stand. Those who are sealed. Now, in the Old Testament, you remember uh, Revelation's packed with Old Testament imagery. You really can't understand Revelation without really understanding some Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 9, there's a passage that is, uh, it, it is probably the most likely reference for this word, of this idea of sealing, okay? Look at, um, do we have that, Ezekiel chapter 9? In, uh, in context, let me kind of catch you up with it. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 9, there is this, uh, uh, the, the nation of Israel is wicked, right? So they're turning to idols, they're turning to false gods, they're not... They're not believing in Yahweh, ordering their life around him. And so uh, what happens is this angel of the Lord comes to judge the people. And what God says is he says, pass through the city of Jerusalem. There it is. Uh, and the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. So all of the faithful, right, in, in Ezekiel, two types of people, those who love God and those who don't. Right, those who love God, those who love their idols. And I, I believe the reality is the same two types of people together on earth today. Right? Those who love God and those who love their idols. And he says, all those who love God who are faithful, 
right, who haven't defiled themselves, who haven't compromised, who haven't turned to these, these wooden statues and these images to, to, that they've crafted with their hands, these little G gods that uh, Isaiah just mocks and, you know, Elijah mocks. And he says, these are not gods. They can't do anything for you. They have no eyes to see or ears to hear. They, they won't call out or, or do any, They have no power in themselves. He says, all those who have turned to them, don't mark them, bring judgment against them, but go and mark on the foreheads of all those who are the servants of God, all those who are faithful, mark them, and then the judgment will come through. So when he talks about sealing, this is the image that Jews would have had in their mind, okay? As they're receiving, as the church is receiving this letter through John, God's given to him this vision. He says, write it down and take it to the churches. The churches would have received this vision, and they would have understood, okay, so this judgment's coming, and he says, hold off until all of the servants of God are sealed. So their mind would have went back to, what do I know in Old Testament? Ezekiel 9, when God sealed the faithful, right? He sealed the faithful, and then the judgment came. So it's not a tattoo you're getting on your forehead, okay? So many people are like, in the end days, I know that like the, there's going to be a mark of the beast, right? So I'm not going to microchip my dog. I'm not getting a new iPhone because all these things are like these, these marks of the beast. I don't want to take the mark of the beast, right? I don't want to have the tattoo on my forehead, 666 or whatever, right? Everybody's worried about what the mark is. At the end of the world, we're all going to get a mark, okay? And the mark is not some like tat you got down at like you know, whatever, in, uh, down in Franklin or in Murfreesboro on the square. That's not, that's not what you're getting. What it's talking about is this mark we know from Ephesians 2 that believers, all believers will get, right? And what is it? Here it is. It's a ceiling. And what is the ceiling? It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, right? So what did God mark the faithful with? The Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit is what marks us. And we see this evidence of that marking in the inworkings and outworkings of the Holy Spirit in your life. Are you fighting sin more and more and more? Are you more, uh, you know, are you loving the things of God more and more and more? Do you desire to be with his people? Do you desire to meet with him through Bible reading and prayer, things like that? That's how you know you're marked. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. So in the beginning right here, he says, don't go forward in judgment until we have sealed all the servants of our God. Now, there are many people who have different ideas about who these people are because they, they go down when they, in verse 4, it says, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from the tribes of the son of, uh, sons of Israel. Right? So there's 144,000. Who is that? There's a lot of debate in church history, right? Jehovah's Witnesses would say the 144,000 are a, a special batch of anointed Jehovah's Witnesses who will be in heaven and every other Jehovah's Witness that's lived. And, and by the way, that batch has been closed since 1935. Everyone else makes up this great multitude that Chad read about that will be standing around the throne singing amen and sevenfold praise of God. And their eyes are the ones that will be wiped clean, right? That's what they believe. Now, other people, there's other batches of people that believe uh, different interpretations of Revelation. Some approach it very literally. They're called futurists, right? And, they, and that may be some of you today. That's okay. If you don't agree with, with me, that's all right. And how, where I'm going to go, uh, these are third-tier issues, okay? So at the end of the day, we can shake hands, disagree. The main thing we got to agree on, we'll get to that in a minute. But here's the deal. So futurists believe very literally when you come to Scripture, when you come to Revelation, these things happen chronologically. They believe that there is a literal seven-year period called the Tribulation coming. We're not there yet. It will come 
just in the last days, I believe the last days are what we're living in right now since Jesus ascended to heaven, right? So after he dipped out after his resurrection, left the church with the Holy Spirit, said, go live on mission, I'm going to empower you to do so. From that moment till he returns, these are the last days, right? And, uh, and so the day we believe that these days are coming. There's a literal seven years coming, and just before that, God's going to snatch the church from, from the trials coming through this terrible time of intense persecution, this tribulation, and that God is going to open the eyes of these Jews, true blue Jews, right? These ones that actually are ethnic Israel, that God will bring this awakening or this revival of the Jews in that seven years, and there will be a literal 144,000 of them that will come to faith. They will then go and evangelize the rest of the earth to love Jesus, and that would make up this great multitude we see later on in this text. Here's what I have a problem with, okay? If that's true, and we approach it very literally, like on their grounds, on, on a futurist interpretive kind of idea, then how in the world does anyone come to faith if all the church has been snatched? Who preached the gospel to them, right? Who preaches the gospel to the 144,000 and, 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 and results in their salvation, Right? And then there's nothing in this text to say anything about them then becoming evangelists. Right? In God's economy, and this is so important as a, as a new church and as people of God that we get this. Listen, no one comes to faith in Jesus apart from the gospel preached. That's how, he's, that's how he has ordained it to happen. Sure, God can, you know, a rock can cry out and preach the gospel to somebody. But there's no rocks in church history that have ever cried out and preached the gospel to anyone. He has ordained it to be so that God, that he sends broken people with the message of the gospel to bring hope to the lost, open their eyes to the realities of Jesus, they cry out to him in faith, and they are saved, and so then sealed, okay? If you look at uh, Paul's logic in Romans 10, this is what he says. How are they, the, those who don't know Jesus, how are they to call on him in, in, in Christ in whom they have not believed. So how are they going to call on him if they've never believed in him? Okay, it goes on. And how are they going to believe in him of whom they've never heard? Right? How can they believe in Jesus if they've not heard of Jesus? Okay? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? <laughs> and here's the thing. And how are they going to preach unless they are sent? And I love that text because that's why we exist. Right? The reason LifePoint Arrington is here today is because we have been sent out by our church to take the gospel to those who have never heard it, right? We are sent to take the gospel. It's, listen, it's not my job to preach the gospel to everyone, okay? My job is to equip the saints to know the gospel in such a way you can articulate it to your neighbor, to the one that, you're, that you employ, to your, maybe it's people around your dinner table, right? People in your own home who this, this uh, book of Revelation says will stand before God in judgment apart from believing in Christ. So if you're here today and you know the gospel, who are you telling? Who are you telling? It's not just news for you. It's too good to keep to yourself. It's too good to keep to yourself. So the way that God has ordained this to, to happen, excuse me, is that we would, God's people would take the gospel to the ends of the earth and the people would respond in faith. And if there are no believers to do that, I don't believe that the 144,000 are a literal ethnic group of Jews. I don't believe that's the case. Also, if that's a pro if we're going very literal with it, when you get to chapter 14, it says that the 144,000 are also only celibate men, okay? And we know that that's not heaven, okay? So that's not the case. So I believe that the tribulation 
started, again, the moment that Jesus dipped to heaven. The moment he went to heaven, he said, y'all wait here, don't move, because you're going to mess it all up. Stay here, I'm going to send you a helper. The scripture in, in the Greek, is called, it's called the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit, that's going to dwell inside the hearts of believers. The moment we respond to Jesus in faith, we receive the Holy Spirit. He lives within us, right? He lives in us. He dwells inside God's people. When we read our Bibles, he's the one that helps us understand. It's called illumination. He helps us understand what we're reading. He convicts us of sin in our lives and helps us to live in victory over those things, right? It, as, we, as we progressively look more and more like Christ. Now, I believe that that period of tribulation started from the moment that he left till the moment he will return. It's an indefinite amount of time. You know, seven years is what it talks about uh, in, in Scripture. And this seven years, seven throughout Revelation, throughout Scriptures, this word, it means total or complete, right? So I believe it is a total and complete time, but it is a time that God has ordained before the foundation of the world. This time will culminate when he is set aside for it to do so. When he comes back in in uh, judgment, that's when it will happen. But we are living in that tribulation period of time, that intense persecution where the church will be purified, where the church will be tested, and the authenticity of God's people will be proved out. I believe we're living in that, right? Now let me tell you a couple texts to show you why I believe that. Okay, Matthew chapter 5 is a great one. Chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 10. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven all right so so the god's people are blessed when we are persecuted in the name of Jesus Christ right if we were going to be snatched through hard times what does this passage even mean right god's people were never promised to be snatched away from trial in our lives we are promised to be kept through it Right to be kept and sealed through it. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And listen, church, throughout church history, they have been met with tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness. Even today, danger and sword. There are many Christians who lose their lives every single day. And so there is no promise in Scripture, listen to me, the church, nowhere in Scripture is guaranteed a snatching out of hardship. What we are promised is that as we meet it, he is faithful to keep us. He is faithful to uphold us. First Peter 4 is probably, to me, the most like eye-opening. It says, to the believers, to the church, okay? Paul is, I mean, uh, Peter is, sorry, Paul is writing right here. He says, beloved, do not be surprised Sorry, it's Peter writing, sorry. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. So to a church in the first century, don't be surprised when trial meets your doorstep. Don't be surprised. He says, as though something strange were happening to you. And look what he says. But rejoice insofar as you now share in Christ's sufferings. This is why I think John, in the book of Revelation, even says, I am a partner with you in tribulation. Even John saw himself in this letter. He sees himself as living in the midst of this difficult time that the Bible calls this tribulation period of time, right? So it's not coming, it's now. We've seen this devastation on repeat, right, throughout 
throughout history, and even today, was anybody in the room disagree with me that things are getting worse? Right? Things don't seem to be improving. Right? There is wars and rumors of wars. There is you know, famine and disease on our land. Morality is just unraveling towards ditches that we've never seen. Listen, they're even taking the mister off the potato head. Okay? If there's ever a sign of the times, <laughs> it's that. Right? Things aren't getting better. They're not getting better. So I believe that we are in this period of time. Again, if you don't agree with me, that's okay. You don't have to. This is a, a third-tier issue. But I do believe that rather than it being ethnic Jews that come awake to the realities of Christ in the midst of a seven-year uh, period, seven period of time, I believe that period of time is the church age that we're living in. And it's not just ethnic Jews, but it's all redeemed people. It's all redeemed people, all those throughout the church age. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, true blue Jew and Gentile alike, right, that look to Christ and believe and respond in faith. Another reason I believe this is because of the list of tribes that we get in this passage. Right now, listen, I'm going to put the disclaimer in. It's a little technical right here. Don't lose me, okay? There's a point. I'm going to do this, okay? Now, in the Old Testament, you have these you, you, you know what I'm talking about, the 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from Judah and Benjamin. You, you, you get this list in this, uh, in this passage of those who are sealed, numbering 144,000, and it's from these tribes, these heads of the tribes of Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with Old Testament, it's okay. There was a man named Jacob, okay? Jacob uh, had 12 sons by four different women. Sounds expensive, right? Not, again, not the sons, the women. All right? uh, tw you know, 12 sons, four different women, and uh, two that were concubines. Okay? Now, in the Old Testament, it was, it was common uh, and custom that if your wife struggled with fertility, that she would give her uh, handmaiden or her concubine to, or his concubine to, uh, to her husband for the purpose of, uh, of having kids, okay? Now, uh, that was a little weird today, okay? <laughs> Thank God that, that custom's no longer. Uh, but he had 12 tribes, I mean, 12 sons that became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. There are 20, over 20 different times in Scripture where we have a list of these tribes. There's not one time where it looks like this. So I think that there's, I don't think God messed up, right? I don't think John had a typo. I think there's intentionality behind this. I think it's important that there's some order, the order that we see these things happening in. Again, ultimately, commentators disagree on this, okay? So, in the end, we don't know. God in his, his mystery, the way he does things, he has, he is just, this is what he gave John for the churches. But I think that there's something in this, okay? So, let's look at this together at the order there in that text. It says in chapter uh, 7, verse 4, it says, I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Verse 5, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. This, I think it's important that God gave John this vision. He hears 12,000 from the tribe of Judah first. What God is doing in the book of Revelation on repeat is helping us to see Christ. And right here, he starts with the son that would become the head of the tribe from which Christ would come. Now, you don't see this often in Scripture, but right here you see Judah first, as if God's saying Jesus is first, right here again. He goes on and he gives an uncharacteristic list. He leaves out some sons, 
and then he adds some sons. And, uh, and so as you see this, it, it's, it's, I think it's interesting in the least, right? Dan, the tribe of Dan, is excluded. It was a son of, uh, of, of, of uh, Israel, of Judah, uh, a tribe of Judah, but it's, it's omitted from this list. Why? Well, I believe Dan and Ephraim, or Ephraim, both of those are omitted from this list, and both of those cities became idolatry hubs, like places where wickedness was rampant. And so it's not listed here in these people of God, right? These sealed servants of God, it's not listed here. It's like God is, again, giving us this picture that these people are conquerors. These people are faithful. These people are committed. They are not idol worshipers that I'm talking about around that throne. These people worship the one true and living God. So it starts with Christ. He, he, gives, uh, he, he omits a few, and he also, before he gives his biological kids that are Jews, true blue Jews, he even adds in the sons of of concubines, right? And not just that, but he adds one of the tribes, Manasseh, who wasn't even a son of Jacob. It's a son of Jacob's son, Joseph, who he had with an Egyptian woman, right? So here's the point. You have even in this lineage, in this list of tribes, Jews and Gentiles. And so here, here's the point. Okay, I don't want to get you all discombobulated. It was discombobulating just to think about it this week. But here's what I believe you see in this. I believe that this is a, uh, I believe this is a 144,000 symbolic number of both Jews and Gentiles throughout the church age that will be around the throne on that day, okay? 144,000 is also interesting, 12 times 12 times 1,000, 12 heads of the tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant times 1,000. What's up with 1,000? In Hebrew, they don't have numbers like a gazillion or a billion. They don't think like that. It, it's a thousand is one of the biggest, most incomprehensibly large numbers. So it's 144,000 is 12, tw uh, 12 uh, um, tribes of the sons of Israel, 12 apostles times this unbelievable number. The point is Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant, all of God's people, all the redeemed, all who have looked on Christ, both Jew and Gentile, will be there on that day. Okay, so that's, that's what I believe. And I think it's also important that you see that he hears, he hears the 144,000 when he opens his eyes. In the next vision he's given, he turns and looks, and who does he see? He gets a picture of what that 144,000 looks like in heaven. And look what he sees. Beautiful. He says, after that I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and from every tribe and people in language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I love this text because it is great. I mean, it's just dripping with vision for our church. Listen, God's kingdom is not monochromatic. It is not mono-ethnic. It is not monocultural. It is not, it, it, it is a a myriad of color and complexion and culture. It is people from every different tribe, tongue, language, and nation. On that day, when we look around, I want you to understand, it won't be people that just look like you. If that's the places you feel most comfortable from whatever you were raised up in. And listen, we have some deeply set things that our culture speaks into and informs in our hearts. But inside of the church, I want to make sure you understand this, racism and bigotry, those things ought to die. 
They ought to die here. Because why? Because on that day, we know there is no racism. There is no differentiation. There's no partiality. On that day, we will stand around a throne with people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, right? And so here's what you need to know. I know right now in our culture, this is a hot, you know, kind of hot button issue, right? But the reality is that racism will always exist in a fallen world where sin is present. It will always be alive and it will thrive. But inside this church, it needs to die. And inside of our hearts, we need to ask God, would you help purge that from me? Because if I'm a sealed saint, if I'm one that will be there around that throne on that day, I pray that there's none of that in me. Listen, and so we can all come before that. We can all come before God and say, Lord, would you look in me and see, is there anything where, where that might be present? Would you help me to love people that aren't like me, that don't talk like me, that don't share the same cousin, don't share the same belief, that aren't complected like me, they don't have the same income, they don't have the same family structure? Did, would you help me to love people from every tribe, every tongue, every language? And my prayer, what I've been praying, is that this church, right, would, would mirror the culture that God has us in. Now listen, it's not likely that this church is going to be super, you know, arrayed in complexion based on the demographics of this community. But it ought to mirror the community that we're in, right? It ought to be as diverse as the culture that we live in. And so as, we, as God, and I pray, man, and I don't know about you, if you've seen this, but God is moving people here from all over the world. I've talked to realtors who sell homes, and they're like, man, we had this new community that's opened up, and it's like, well, we got 200 people on a wait list, and they're from all over the, the world. They're moving right here. So as God increases our culture, our cultural difference, and our cultural diversity, I pray that this church would continue to increase in that, same, in that same way, right? Let that be your prayer, too. Would God push you out of comfort places to take the gospel to those who are not like you, okay? So on that day, we see this beautiful crowd. And how'd they get there? How'd they get there around that throne? And I'm, I'm going to wrap up here. How'd they get there? He says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. These are the ones coming out of this church age. And what have they done? He says, they have washed their robes. Listen, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What's he talking about? Well, here's the thing. White robes and palm branches in the New Testament is this symbol for victory. It's the word uh, Nike in Greek, or where we get Nikes today, right? You got Nikes on, you're victorious, all right? Uh, that's why I wore mine today, so I could, man, I, I, I'm in spirit today. And I anticipated getting a little bit more animated this morning, but now I'm just playing. Listen, uh, how did they get there? Man, they, they, they have been, they have been, they wear the victory purchased for them by Christ. It didn't say they washed their robes in their self-righteousness. It didn't say they washed their robes in their religious routines. It didn't say they washed their robes in their bank statements or in their success stories or in their accumulations. It says they washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Listen, on that day, the reason we will stand with those redeemed saints is if we can say in accord with them that the reason I'm here is because of what Jesus has done. His is the victory. His is the victory. It's all him. And listen, when you know that end, this is what's beautiful. When you know that end, it changes the way that we live today. It changes the way that we live today. In, in Revelation, there was a quote I read this week I want to kind of end with. There's a, there's a quote that a man named Alistair Begg, 
I don't know if you have ever heard of him. He's a theologian, pastor, author, and he, he said something I, thought, I think is just really, really clear that I think would maybe just align our hearts and attention this morning. It says, in Revelation, the main things, the main things are the plain things. Right? As we look at this book, the thing that we ought to not leave here, we shouldn't leave here confused about, okay, well, Matt said all this about all these tribes, 144,000, I don't even know what all that means. He lost me at good morning. <laughs> Listen, the main things in Revelation are the plain things. So what is the, what is the plain thing that we see in this text? I believe the last two verses of chapter 17 are the plain thing. Let's read this together. Just look at this with me. Verse 15, do you have that, Blake? It says, therefore, they are before the throne, God's people the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall not hunger anymore, neither thirst anymore. They shall, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The main thing in this text is not even who's there but the one seated on the throne. <laughs> the main thing of, about Revelation 7 is not these 144,000 and these, oh, these tats on their forehead. That, that's not what this is about. The, the main thing that we need to leave here today with is understanding that, that the ones who, who sit with God, who stand with God around the throne he's seated upon are those who are sealed because of what he has accomplished for them by faith. Right? And so if you're here today, how do we respond to these things? What do we do in response? Well, I think two clear things. Are you sealed? Are you sealed? If you're going to be there that day, it's because he says you are a servant of God. He says, listen, don't let, don't let judgment come against them. Don't let the world begin to kind of unfold until I have sealed them. I believe that God's people were sealed before the foundation of the world. Scripture tells us that he wrote the names of all the redeemed saints in the Lamb's book of life before, listen to this, before the foundations of the world. That's powerful. That means, listen, literally, that if you came to Christ at whatever point that was in your life, it was because God ordained it to happen in that moment. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't like so you just chased some, you know, whatever, like you, you knocked on every door until God opened it. It was that in his timing, he orchestrated, he ordained before he hung a star in the sky or placed the moon where it is, right? He literally wrote your name and ordained the moment you would return, you would look to him in faith. And here's what I believe is true. There are people all over this community, in this neighborhood, in the neighboring neighborhoods. You know, we're not just the church for King's Chapel. We are the church for Arrington and beyond, right? Wherever he wants to orchestrate in this thing. And there are people beyond these walls, these gates, all in Southern Williams County, God is bringing here. And God has ordained that some of them would, re, would respond to him in faith. They are in this picture, I believe. And we have to be the ones to take the gospel to them, right? And so here's the thing. Are you a part of this picture? Are you sealed? If you're sealed, how do you know you're sealed? Where the Holy Spirit lives in you, right? That's what we're saying. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit ought to be working in your life. Are you growing to love Jesus more? No, listen, not perfectly. I talk about this idea of, you know, when my daughter first started walking, you know, if you've had a, a baby, it's like, man, like, 
humorous. You know, they, they get that head out front, they're walking, and they fall down. You know, that thing's just two steps and fall down. And we're not, I'm not like, get up, Lottie. What the heck's wrong with you? You know, I'm like, oh my gosh, she took two steps. We're, we're filming it, we're streaming it on everything we can, and, you know, letting everybody know about it. We're telling everybody, we know. listen, that, I believe that's how God looks at his people, right? Not perfectly, but progressively. Are you walking with the Lord? more and more loving him loving his word hating sin in your life you know the things that you fight and, and the things that you uh, you battle whether that be some addiction that be some impure thought or that be anger or greed whatever that is in your life are you growing in victory over those things remember when you know the end it changes how we live today knowing that jesus has won the battle that he's He's clothed his people in his righteousness, in his victory that he has purchased for them, that he worked for them. It ought to change the way that I, I struggle with whatever that is, right? I, say, I don't have to bow down. I don't have to compromise. I don't have to, you know, I don't, I don't have to uh, lay down and let this thing just have its way in my life. I can walk faithfully today because I know the end. I know the end. So are you sealed and are you enduring? Are you enduring? Because on that day, those that are standing there have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They stand victorious. Listen, we're in a battle. We're in a battle. And you may be feeling like you've lost it. But listen, he's won the war. Okay? So live today with that reality in mind. All right, we pray for you. Father, I love you. God, I'm so thankful for your word. So thankful for uh, just your church that you're building here. This is your church, God. It's not mine. This is not my kingdom. This is not my of my hand God what you're doing here is a work of your hand and so Father I pray that you would just move in power God I pray that if there's someone in here today that doesn't know if they're going to stand around that throne that day maybe they don't know if they know the one that sits on that throne Lord Jesus would you God open their eyes to see Christ to see a better life that he offers them your word says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come that we might have life and have it abundantly, a better life than many of us are settling for. So, Lord, would you do what only you can? Would you encourage your church to live differently today because of what we know happens in the end? God, I pray that you would save, that you would motivate, that, God, you would leave us just in awe of that day. It's your name we pray. Amen.